Hello, everybody, and welcome to another episode of Passing Dimes. Really excited for today's guest. He is returning from episode 213, and I recommend going to listen to that one before listening to this one just so you can get the background. So today's guest is a several-time OVA medalist with Storm. He went on to play for the Windsor Lancers, where he helped them achieve a national bid. He's an OUA second-team All-Star, and he's currently still with the Windsor Lancers as an assistant coach. Please welcome to the show, Nolan Langley. Nolan, thanks for doing this, man. Thanks for having me. I always like coming on this podcast and... You know, giving my point of view, hearing other people's point of view. So it's fun to talk about volleyball. So I appreciate it. Well, you're the guy to talk to. And selfishly, this is this is for me as much as it is for the listeners. But anyone who's been listening to our other show, uh, Sharp Cuts, knows that we've been picking on setters because uh, more so this year than other years in U sports, it seems like the the popularity of setting your best player as many balls as you can in a match is coming over. So instead of me being frustrated and searching for the answers myself, I thought I'd just ask an expert. But uh, before we get into the weeds of the setting position, just in case somebody didn't listen to episode 213, uh, I do want to circle back for one quick story uh, of why I think you're the guy to talk about this because you're so competitive and whenever i get in an argument with somebody about the setting position it's usually well did they win well then their strategy was like sound right so with you being a guy we would label as a winner but also somebody we would label as like a little bit undersized maybe before we get into the weeds just tell me what attracted you to the setting position and what made you excel at it so well going back to when i was when i was younger just learning how to play uh it was kind of the only position that i had to like going for me just due to my size. Um, back when I started playing, I like in public school, uh, we didn't have liberos back then. Right. So, um, me being as small as I was, it was just directed straight uh, to setting and kind of went with it from there. Um, there was a little, a little portion of my 16 new year when we were able to have liberos, um, at that point that I, I slowly got pushed in that direction a little bit, but um, wanted to continue setting as well. Kind of took some reps at both and um, just kind of kept working as hard as I could on setting because that was a position that I like to do. Um, there was also one point in my university career that I started getting pushed in that direction a little bit as well. Uh, I think partway into my second year that I started taking some serving reps uh, or some passing reps off some servers, off some um, serving machine, and um, did that a little bit, but did the same thing. Just kept working on with my setting and uh, stayed in that direction. It ended up working out for me, I think. But um, when it comes to my competitiveness for it and how how I stayed competitive due to my size was that um, I found different parts of my game that I kind of had to focus on that I knew. I, I took away the parts that I knew that I wasn't going to be as good as other setters at and kind of just tried to excel the, the things that I could do and put them a little bit higher than those other setters in the league. Um, for example, you know, I'm not the most offensive setter um, when it comes to dumping and scoring points like that. Um, you can see that if you're watching any of our games right now, like Anthony has the capability to throw balls to the floor and score points for, for Windsor, but I was never really that guy. So I kind of just took that out of my game. I wasn't scoring with it and decided to just really hone in on running an offense and setting my attackers as best that I could. Now, just to circle back, uh, just to your university story there, did that really 
did that just um, kind of magnify your ability to compete or did that help you train it like it is a skill? Because I think whenever we think setters, we want them to be competitive. And we've had some great setters over the show, yourself included, about, you know, keeping track of drill wins and practice. Like, why is it important for a setter to be so competitive? And like, did you find moments to practice that or was that more natural for you than like a learned skill? Uh, I think it was more natural for me than, than learning competitiveness. I've, I've always been competitive, um, with the smallest things in life. Um, anyone that knows me really well, it gets down to just winning a random argument about nothing that I'll still, you know, dig into until someone else gives up. But, uh, it was, it wasn't really something that I had to learn to, to dig into practice to find that competitiveness. But I, I do think like it is a it is a skill that you have to get better at uh, for sure, but that kind of came a bit a bit more natural to me. Speaking of random arguments about nothing, uh, what a perfect segue here! Because <laughs> when we had TJ on Sharp Cuts, we had an amazing conversation about setting, and and Garrett brought up the great question about just it's not a well-coached position, but it is on the surface level where coaches will tell you, you know, we got to establish middle and we got to have a balanced offense and spread the ball, but Oh, we got to get our best player involved and they have to get the most volume. So what was it like as, as a youth setter and now as a coach trying to check all these boxes where the, the coach talk comes in, where literally it's, it's everything, but nothing all at the same time about what the strategy is supposed to be. Yeah. Uh, honestly, it's frustrating. It's super frustrating. Uh, and I, I've had, I had my fair share of practices where I would walk out of the gym and it'd just be so angry about getting different points of view. Cause you know, you have more than one, more than one coach. I know, you know, there's not a, not every team, especially in the OUA has like a specific setting coach. Uh, I did, I had will and now Windsor has both will and I, but Gravel has also worked with setters in the past. Um, you know, for like the national B team and stuff. So we have three, three coaches now on our squad that are, um, you know, put in their point of view towards the setters that are probably telling the setters different things at different times. And I know that that can get frustrating because that happened to me personally. So it is something that's frustrating to deal with, but I personally think that throughout my five years of, of being there and practicing that there is a way that you can actually fit all of that into a game plan. And, um, there's a way to check all of those boxes off. Now, can, can you give me an example? Because I think it, it is this mythical creature. It's almost like a unicorn where I don't know if I've ever seen it done well, where you can, you know, establish the middle and have a balanced offense, but still make sure that your guy got the lion's share, like 40% of the balls or whatever the, the lion's share is that game. So when you go into a match, Yes, you have the game plan, but how much does that get adjusted based on like feel and what you're seeing and how your team's passing? Like, is it possible to do a game plan from start to finish or do you always have to kind of play what's happening in the moment? I I don't think there is a way that you can get through a whole match focusing on uh, a specific game plan uh, unless everything goes your way the entire time. Like that would be you guys having full control from start to finish, which is I've never seen happen before. but. Um, so you do have to adjust throughout the match, but, um, you know, I, I alluded back, like going back to another episode that I was on, on sharp cuts, I mentioned when we were talking about, um, I believe it was one of the, what maybe like a Laval game or, or something like that, where someone had a really high number of attempts, 
Um, and I said that if I go back and watch that game, I guarantee that I can find a better set to make in that situation rather than going to that guy who's, you know, scoring the points for you guys, but there probably is a better set or a more correct set that they can make in that situation. And that would be ticking off potentially another box uh, of what, you know, this, this setting scheme of establishing the middle, but spreading the ball and also feeding your hot hitter and doing all that. There was probably time that they could have mixed a couple more of those other things in there that probably would have scored them a point, but ultimately we don't really know if that was going to score a point for them because that's not what happened. But I do think that there was probably other times that he could have forced the middle to reestablish it or to, you know, like I, I also mentioned there, maybe he wasn't even running a, a 31 based offense to separate to him or stuff like that. So there is some things in my opinion that you can do that could potentially help you out in, in some of those situations. See, that, that's another awesome segue because spoiler alert, we, we just recorded another episode of Sharp Cuts that won't come out uh, before your episode does. But uh, so you wouldn't have had a chance to hurt. But we got Max Lozzi on the show and we talked about, dude, 82 attempts, 39 kills. Like <laughs> what was going on? And he did play right side that match and they did run a 30 base. So I'd love to hear your thoughts about and Max told me he was still getting one on ones in system. So that to me is a setting art, too, of how can you get the other team's middle to keep yipping on the 30, even though. Oh, like 55%, 60% of the offense is going to the right side. How do they think like, oh, it's going to happen this time. And you keep leaving the right side alone. Like that, that to me has to be the art of setting. And if anyone uh, wants another good episode, Dustin Snyder talked about the art of that, where everyone in the gym knew Gavin was going to get the ball, but he still had to get the other middle to commit either to the middle pipe or the left side just to get Gavin alone. Right. So those moments where everyone knows where the ball should be going, how do you get the middle to respect your middle? Yeah. So, I mean, you could do that by keeping them honest, you know, giving your middle a, a ball every once in a while, um, just to keep it in the back of their head. Like, Hey, I could still go here. And if I notice that you're biting on my right side, like I can, I can flip one into the, into the 31 and score, which was probably one of the things that I did most. That was my, my way of keeping the middles honest. Um, I had a really good 31 hitter, uh, with Dami. Alalade uh, when I was playing and that was his best, his best uh, middle ball was the 31. So um, if I wanted to separate to, to Brad on the right side, um, I don't know how many setters, I know every setter does it differently or some, some of them don't even do it at all and are working on it. But uh, I always took a look to see where the opposing middle was set up. If I saw that they weren't, commit blocking the 31 i would most likely fire it in to to dami in the 31 so he can hit that gap and if i saw him hedging over that way take a half step or even like fully committing on him then you have a wide open set to your right side to have a one-on-one block so um it was kind of a mix of mixing in the middles when i could um but also being able to um work that skill of taking a look at the opposing middle blocker to see where he's set up on, on his defensive side to make my decision on where the ball is going to get set. Yeah. I love the setter look. Definitely a skill to have now in your own coaching career. 
Are, are you on board with what's kind of trending with what Benja was trying to install and a bunch of U Sports teams are doing where now the middles run to what's called where the gap is. So they're not running a spot like a 31 isn't run to like the tip of the logo in most gyms or whatever the spot on the floor is. They're having to like move a little bit like as a setter, that's a little bit challenging where maybe the 31 has to go three meters this time, three and a half, two and a half the next time. Like how deadly do you think that is once the middle and setter can click on this like gap based offense versus like a spot on the floor? Yeah, I think that would be it, like, it's definitely going to be harder to connect with. That's going to take a lot of reps, a lot of uh, personal time spent together, I think, is also a, a big factor in that kind of just knowing um, where like spending enough time together to know where that person's going to go by the time you get onto the court and finding that gap. Um, but I think it would be a, a big help if you're able to to do that because then you're that way you're making it, you're making it an open gap every single time you set the ball. Whereas if, if you're running the standard 30, they could, they know exactly where you're going if they see that attacker over there. Um, so I, I definitely think it can work, but it's going to be a harder to, to get down. That's for sure. So with volleyball and oversimplification is we're, we're a point scoring sport. Whoever gets 25 by two wins. So, when you start thinking of efficiencies and how can we score more points efficiently, I think the the biggest ticket right now that I see between, you know, great teams versus good teams is the middle in transition. I think middles in transition are so efficient, but way easier said than done in terms of the connection and where the ball needs to be. So how do you build that relationship with your middle? Cause like I said, I think that's the highest efficient shot, but uh, it, it takes a pretty good dig. It takes the middle being on time and aggressive. Like they might not get it every time, but if they keep going, the, the middle transition, I think is impossible to stop if it's run well. I would completely agree with you. It is something that I think a lot of young setters have trouble um, finding and even thinking about. Like, it's, I don't even think it's a thought process in their head because when I was going through my early stages of university, it wasn't a thought that was going through my head. Um, it was, you know, we have a decent dig, but not a dig that I thought would be good enough to set the middle. But then as I got more comfortable, got more reps in, um, got really comfortable with forcing the middle, then that's when it started to become helpful and useful. And then that opens up your entire court for you. If they know that you can run that middle and transition, um, because you know, they're like, I discussed in that last point, like they're going to have to respect it. And if they respect you from, they respect you from two and a half on a perfect four pass, all the way to the attack line because they know that you can force that 30 from half a step behind the attack line on a, like a two pass, then like your, your whole game plan just opens up even more. For sure. Yeah. I, I think the 30 is the bread and butter in transition, especially if you're defending like your opponent's right side, get off the net, hit a 30, I think is very friendly. What do you like to run when they're attacking from four? Cause I think on paper we kind of go, Oh, just closest pin, run a back quick. But man, that connection on the back quick is really hard in transition. Do you expect your middle to get in front and hit a 50 or what do you like to do when, like I said, you're, you're defending position four and the middle has to close a block and get off. When you, yeah. Um, so I would normally like them to come in front. Um, if they can make that, uh, that, that block over to position four. Um, and then if they, you know, kind of open up and break out, um, 
behind you, but come still be able to come around you to run that 50. I think that it opens up the offense a bit more than if they, if they run the 60, I know that sometimes they won't be able to just timing wise, dig wise. Um, like there's a lot of factors that come into the decision that those middles have to make after, after closing to that pin. But if they have the time, um, I would, I would prefer them to come in front of me. Um, I find that it holds the middle a bit better than a 60 because the 60 doesn't really get set very often in that situation. So I think a lot of people disregard it. Um, but if they come in front, it acts like more of a real threat. And then you can, you have both pins available and you also have that, uh, that push pipe to come over top of that 51. Nice. Yeah. Thank you for that. So to switch from transition back to uh, receive and first ball, how important is the rotation? Like, are you able to identify our best hitter on their worst blocker or it's a front row setter situation? So we want to get more balls over in that zone or, you know, this middle doesn't do well closing on the 30. Like how important is it to know what rotation you're in and what rotation they're in versus just knowing that like uh, a very simple game plan, our best players in the front row. So we're going to set them no matter who's across the net. Yeah. When I played um, the rotation that we were in was uh, super important to me. Um, like I did a lot of game planning, did a lot of one-on-one video, uh, with my coaches just to see what they like to do in certain rotations blocking wise. Um, and then I knew what a lot of my guys like to do, um, attacking wise out of service, Steve. Um, but also like another, another thing that went through my head was that, uh, especially if I'm in the front row, uh, I don't want to have long rallies like playing these good teams that have like six, 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 seven left sides that are just going to, you know, inevitably get the ball and, and like hit over top of me and score a point. Like I want to get in and get out of that rotation. So, um, like I pride myself on first ball side out, give me the pass, find the best attacker score, get out, and then let's try and score points while we have the serve and we can make the long rallies last there. But I wanted to get in, get out, score my point and and move on there. So the rotation was everything. Um, the point would end. I would look through the net and do a full scan of, of their side of the court. Who's in the front row, who's in the back row, where the setter was, where the middles were, who my attackers were, where they all were. And then from there, like what I wanted to run on this next ball. Um, if I wanted to run, you know, if I wanted to run my middle, I would know which middles I had in the front, um, what ball they liked more, because I had some that didn't like the 31 as much as the other ones. Like I had Mo probably was was more of a 51-41 attacker. Domi was our, our 31 attacker. Mark Pino was, he just had a heavy arm and he was he was a fast release. So he was like a really big 51 hitter. So all of that has to go through your head. And then um, from there, if you don't want to set the middle or you don't, or you want to at least like not have them be an option, then you have to think of where your ball is going to go from there. Like if you wanted to, if you knew you wanted to use them as a decoy off that, off this next serve coming in, then you have to like, you can't just be, I'm going to use them as a decoy and not set them. Then the thought process ends there. It needs to be like, I'm going to use this 51 as a decoy so that I can set this person. 
and like have a full plan on what you're going to do on that on that serve receive. So if I had if I had like Roland on the left pin, Pierce in the back row, and Brad on the right side, and I had Mark up there in the front row, I would think I want to run my 51 so that if I get a perfect pass, it's going over top to Pierce in the pipe. And I knew that going into that full rotation. And then if I didn't get the pass for the pipe, I can't force it. You just like you you change your mind on on the spot from there and then you know do with with the pass that you get. But I think there's a, a full thought process that has to to go through your your head as a setter um within those like 15 seconds that you get between rallies. Yeah, as you're explaining this, it, it almost sounds like a, a quarterback when you get really smart people on TV like Tony Romo explaining their progressions. And I imagine the more comfortable you get at those decisions are made faster. But is that a fair way to explain it? That you're thinking, OK, here's my plan if everything's optimal. And then as things start to break down, do you have progressions where you go, OK, that's out, that's out, that's out. Like, how does your brain work or how would you encourage a younger setter to start to think about it? Where like it's one thing to have a plan, but to not have your mind made up, if that makes sense. Yeah. Yeah. That's, that's a, a, a good point is that you, you want to go in with a plan, but you, you don't want to, you don't want the plan to be so set that you're forcing yourself to do it. And I think that that's a, a big problem with young setters is that they, for example, like I haven't set the middle in a while. So if I get a half decent pass, I'm going to set the middle and uh, I'll give you an example that happens quite often with, with a lot of setters because, um, not even young ones. Um, I know I did it. I see it still from older setters in the league is you get, you get like a, a three pass, but the reason that it's a three pass, it goes, it goes straight to two and a half, but the pass is low. So your middle's late. And the, the setter thinks that it's the perfect time to set middle because they haven't got a pass there in a while but the pass is low, the middle's late. It's the perfect time to go away from the middle because the opposing blocker probably thinks it's going to be a middle set because it looks like a good pass and the setter sets the middle. And a lot of the time it ends in a stuff block because the middle's late. It's a slow progressing middle action. And the, the, you know, the blocker just gets to follow it and it's slow developing. So it results in a block. Um, and I think that's an example of that thought process of, okay, if I get a good pass here, I'm going to set the middle. And it seems like a good pass when it's really not the best one to to force a middle on. Um, and that's a, a situation where you need to go away from it. You need to have your mind made up, but then not commit on the decision if the, if everything isn't going your way for that to happen. Um, so I think it just comes with a lot of reps and a lot of time of, of knowing, uh, or sorry, of being able to change that decision on the fly. Um, and that's something that you have to do all the time during a match, like in transition, because you don't get that time mid rally to think everything through like mid midway through a rally. If you're 20 seconds in the ball's gone over the net four or five times back and forth, like you can't sit here and, be thinking midway through the rally oh i'm going to set this guy if this happens or this dig goes over there or something like that you're kind of making your decisions in the split second that you get um but i think that's another spot where being able to gain the skill of looking at that opposing middle blocker 
comes in handy is in that transition because um, that's almost every time if I had a half decent pass inside the attack line that was high enough, I'd be taking a look. And if that blocker wasn't committing on my 31, that ball was going there almost every single time. Um, yeah, th- this is great, man. And, I, like I said, I, I'm trying to get you on the show for selfish reasons to help my own answers, but I'm sure the listeners are going down the <laughs> rabbit hole there. This this is a great explanation. Thank you. No problem. I'm trying to also keep it uh, um, not as in-depth volleyball lingo-wise as I can. <laughs> <laughs> no, th- this I, is I'm good. trying to keep it. But yeah, um, I think it comes with a lot of practice, a lot of reps. And uh, I think it's good that our, our youth are starting to get that a bit more because they, it seems like every year the, the caliber of volleyball is starting to go up um, year by year um, at a younger age, which is nice to see. So hopefully this helps some younger viewers um, be able to at least go into practice thinking um, maybe I'll try to work in looking at my opposing middle uh, whenever I got a chance. And that started for me when I was at a young age, like when I was in 16 U. but I just started doing it in free ball situations. Like there's no need to force it. No need to force it on bad passes or um, anything like that, because at the start, you tend to lose the ball. Like as you practice more, you, you don't need to look at the ball as much to know where the drop point's going to be. So you can afford to take your eye off it and still be in the right spot. But at, when you're first starting out, you lose the ball, you kind of get stuck underneath it sometimes. So I suggest for the younger viewers to try doing it on free balls. You know, you're about to get just a a bump coming over. You get a perfect pass to two and a half, then just like stay behind it and take that look when you get that opportunity to and try and work it in from there. Yeah. Just a a quick side for that one Uh, on the beach. We're really learning Mm -hmm. that, uh, you know, our heads are really heavy. Like it's easy to move your eyes and kind of dart around. We're like, do you physically like look and turn your head that like your whole chin is moving at the other team's middle? Like, uh, do you get comfortable enough that you can kind of just dart your eyes and use your peripherals or do you always have to move your head? Uh, everyone's kind of different. I know for me personally, I moved my entire head. If you go back and watch my game tape, you'll see my whole head move to the side and I'll take my eye completely off the ball, completely off my side of the court, um, and get like a good visual of what's happening on the other side of the net. But I know some people don't like it. Um, I've had a lot of conversations with, um, Windsor's current setter, Anthony. Um, and he doesn't like to, to do the the full look. He doesn't turn his head. He'll use his peripherals and he'll take it as much as he can and maybe do like a slight head move to, to take a peek. But, um, you know, that's just like personal preference. He, he doesn't like to move his head completely and that's totally fine. As long as you, you know, we're getting the same information. It's just, uh, I like to, to fully move my head and some people don't. And I think that's just going to change with every, every person that you get, depending on what they're comfortable with. So, so the other discussion we have ongoing with the show and even uh, friends of the show have messaged me and this argument continues well into my personal time, which is amazing. I don't like how the game is trending towards let's just set our horse because to me, it's starting to feel more like war and it's our guy versus your guy versus like poker and layers and tactics and stuff. So I, I'm wondering, in your opinion, where is the diminishing return where I'm not going to sit here and argue that if all things are equal, 
Josh Nickel hitting against one blocker versus Garrett May or Eric Simon are some absolute studs. Like their efficiency is more. Okay, awesome. But is there a point where Eric Simon hitting against three blockers is less efficient than Josh Nickel hitting against one? And I think there is a point. So I don't think it makes sense to set your best player 70 balls, your second best player 40 balls, and the rest of your team 20 balls. But they're winning, so I can't really argue and say, okay, that there is a point of no return. So what is your opinion on that where... I get it. At the end of the game, your box score, you want your best player to have the most touches. But I'm of the belief there's a diminishing return at some point where you could have got a one on one. You could have got the defense to do something else. You could have got them to think something else was a threat versus it's us versus their guy tonight. Yeah, um, I agree with you. I I'm not a huge fan of the two person massive stat line at the end of the game. Um, I do believe in setting distribution and i told you i commented on that last uh sharp cuts youtube <laughs> video that i'll die on the hill i will die on the hill of setting distribution <laughs> and uh so like i i just my thought process is if if you really break it down what a lot of setters love when they do is give their attackers a one-on-one that's what they like. They love it. They freak out whenever they, they think that they did their job when they give their attackers a one-on-one to spike against. That is what your middles get 100% of the time. And no one sets the middle. And that's where my line gets drawn on why these, all of these people are coming in with these massive stat lines on the pins is because no one sets the middle but they're setting the pins because they think they're giving them a one-on-one block, but your middles have a one-on-one block 100% of the time. So I don't know why you just don't set that, especially in transition. Cause we've already talked about that's when you get that good pass middle blockers in transition tend to get completely lost. Like they, they have a hard time finding the middle of the floor again. They don't center themselves. So a lot of the time they're in the wrong spot. And then they're always looking to close. So if you can find that middle in transition, sometimes you don't even have a block. You have a no block there. So um, I personally think more balls should be set to the middle. And uh, that's one way that they can find a little bit more floor balance and, and distribute the ball a little bit more. Um, but at that same time, going back to um, you know being able to do everything you do need to make sure that your your uh, your big guns get majority of the volume as well because they're you know they're your big guns for a reason. Um, so that's why at the beginning of the episode I said it's frustrating as a setter because you have a bunch of information coming at you from a bunch of different people telling you different things. Um, but I think one way to be able to really spread that ball out a little bit more and get those stat lines down a little bit is finding the middle more and becoming comfortable with setting the middle more. Um, like I personally saw myself as a middle setter. That was what I liked to do. That was um, how I liked to, to run my offense was through the middle of the floor and then spread the ball out from there while keeping my middle still involved. Like I had, I had an all Canadian in the middle. So it was, you know, probably a little bit easier than some other places. Um, John Mo, you know, was kind of one of a kind. Uh, so 
it was pretty easy for me to find him in transition and, and make things work. But um, I think that the middles need to get some more love. Now, it, do you think it's a fear uh, of what could happen? Like you, you mentioned you have like decoys in your offense. Like just to give a, a, an example, Pierce Johnson was player of the year when you were with him there when, when he won that award at Windsor. So let's say there's a situation. He's in the front row. You get an awesome pass and you think, oh, they're going to be camping on him. He's going to get two, if not maybe like a late three. So you force a C ball and they hit the C ball out of bounds. And let's say the score is after 20. Do you worry that your coach is going to be like, well, it was a perfect situation. Like, why didn't we just go to Pierce? Like, is that maybe the fear that if we set our guy and we don't score, we can go, okay, we gave ourselves a chance to win because we went to our guy versus if you force somebody to your third or fourth progression and they don't get it done, does that just open us up to more scrutiny? I think so. Uh, I think that's a good way to look at it. Some people probably are scared. Like we're playing at a, at a high enough level now that uh, you are always have somebody like biting at your heels to get playing time. You know, it's not, it's not a given that you're going to start every single weekend in every single play. So uh, I think it can be a fear that they want to make their coaches happy. And if their coach sees somebody as a, as their, you know, their big gun that if they set them and that guy makes a mistake, like, Oh, the coach loves him. He can, he can deal with having, you know, eight to 10 errors and imagine if we lose, like he's not going to get any heat for it. Um, But I think, you know, going back to, to my comment of their, are correct sets to make in correct situations. And if I'm running a 31 and I see the middle go over with the 31 and Pierce is on left side and I brought that middle blocker over closer to him and he's most likely going to have a double block on him, but my C ball attacker is probably going to have one, like my C ball is the right set to make there. And if he makes an attacking error, then, you know, so be it. He makes an attacking error, but I, I made the right set in that situation. And I think a, a, a lot of the coaches would be relatively happy if the setters can voice that opinion to them, if they have the courage to give them an answer as to why they did it. Um, one of the things that I tell young setters, um, whether that's like young university setters or young setters that I am, am starting with at you know, 14, 15 years old, um, I always tell them that there's a difference between setting and running an offense. And the second, like anyone can step in and set a ball. Everyone has to do it every single game. You know, you got to dig. Setter has to dig. Someone else is going to have to set. Everybody can set. Everyone learns how to set at a young age, but there's a difference between setting the ball and being able to run a full-on offense. And the second that these setters can make decisions and have reasoning behind the sets that they make and reasoning behind why they're telling their middles to run certain things, whether that's the use of the decoy to spread the offense, the use of an, an overload um, to, you know, get them to actually hit and, and keep them established. That's when they get to the point of being able to run an offense. And that's what brings you a step above all of the other setters that are still not able to have that skill of running an offense. 
Yeah, th- th- this is great. So as I'm just looking down my notes here, a couple questions for you. So let's say you come out of the gates and your game plan is running super well. Like everything you thought is happening is going to happen, but we're not playing against robots. We're playing against a well-coached, smart team, and they change their base. They have more than one defense and they change it. And this could be uh, maybe they were commit blocking. Now they're read blocking. Maybe they moved where they're one and five are. Whatever example you want to give here. How much do you train that as a setter versus like, okay, now they've changed their defense. Like, do you invest time into that? Or is that just too hypothetical? And you're like, I'm not going to waste time on what could happen because like, like how much are you preparing versus just like imagining what could happen sometimes? Um, I don't, I don't really look too into that pregame as to what I can do. Um, if they change their, their base from what they start as, but I know that I walked into every game knowing that if they change their base partway through this game, I have that team on the ropes and they are ready to break and they don't have an answer to what we're doing. So they need to make adjustments to try and stop us. And that's when I was actually texting, uh, I was talking to Pierce about this the other day. Um, we were watching OFSA. Um, shout out to Oxbridge. They won OFSA. Yes, My congratulations. Won OFSA the other day. We were watching that and I was, talking to Pierce about this whole thought process of uh, of people changing their their base defense partway through a match. And I used an analogy saying like, when they start changing their base, for example, let's say they are read blockers. So their middle stay in the middle of the court. Um, if you run a 31, they don't follow. They just kind of, if this set comes, they try and get there to get a slowdown, but they're not really trying to fully stop that 31. Um, and then partway through the game, let's say we're, we're up to nothing. And then they decide to change that read blocking scheme to a commit blocking scheme. And that, that person starts following my middle block or my middle attacker all over the court. If they're a 50, they'll stay with them in the 50. If they're running a 31, they all go right out to the 31 lane and they try and stop that. I walk out to that set and see that and I go, okay, that's it. I have them. It's been, I said to Pierce, I'm like, that is the point of the game where the game goes from six on six to eight v four, because now I can use that middle blocker to my advantage because I know if he's going to go to that 31, Brad Jim, he's going to have a one-on-one block for 25 points straight and we're going to win this game. Nice. So you're, you're, uh, again, you have a plan, but your mind's not made up. So you're constantly adjusting, you're constantly moving. So that can get fatiguing. So do you have a coach on the bench that you're running ideas off of? Because you still have to go back and serve. You have to get digs, you have to get blocks, you have to play out the game. So uh, how much mental energy are you investing versus like putting a coach on the bench in charge of like, Hey, can you watch their middle blocker for the next three rotations? I want to know if they're, if they're committing or they're reading or how are you soaking all this in? Yeah. Um, I, I try to do as much as I can myself. Um, at, like when I was talking about this at the start of the show, some of the things that I had to try and um, increase skill-wise for myself uh, from taking some other things out, you know, like I didn't work as much on jumping and um, trying to ramp up my serve as hard as I possibly could or <clears throat> blocking and stuff like that. My mental side of the game is one thing that I worked on nonstop. And that was one thing that I, um, that I pride myself on is my mental toughness, 
Um, my ability to, to read the game, my volleyball IQ was something that I worked on almost every single day, just because I knew that that was one way that I, one thing that I had to increase if I wanted to keep myself competitive. Um, but like you said, it is fatiguing. So I can't do all of it myself. Um, I have a really good relationship with uh, the other setting coach on the team, Will. Um, he helped me with a lot. He's always watching that. But then also, whenever I was on the court or um, if Anthony was on the court, we both did a really good job of staying engaged from the bench and trying to help each other out. So Anthony would also give me pointers from the, from the bench. Um, you know, if I'm missing the fact that the middles are fully committing now or something like that, or if he sees a, a, a pipe opportunity that I missed that, you know, keep an eye out for it next time because their middles are doing this or their team really isn't looking for it. He did a good job at staying engaged and letting me know uh, between timeouts and stuff like that as well. Now I was talking to a youth sports coach and they like the double sub right now. One, because it keeps more people invested, like your, your second setter and your second right side know they're going to get their, their chance to influence the match, but why they really like it. And I won't reveal their identity. I, this coach will get their credit when the credits do, but they're still in season, but they think it can be overwhelming for your starting setter that even those three rotations off to go be in a support role, get a drink, check in with the coaches that that can be really helpful. So do, do you see that help being helpful for most setters? that most coaches should start to look into this double sub thing because exactly what I said, the second setter knows they have a role and they're going to contribute to winning that game. And your starting setter gets like a little bit of a break. It's only three rotations, but that might be enough for them to kind of dial it back in and not be like switched on the whole match. Yeah, I think it can work. Um, I think that me personally might be personnel based um, depending on the team that you have and the the people that you have. I don't know. I, it didn't really happen with me all that much. There were some, some games that, um, you know, we went into it and Gravel would talk to Anthony and I and say like, we're going to double sub you this game and then they'll play like a rotation through or, um, something like that, but it didn't happen all that much. But so I can't really speak on whether or not it would affect me personally in a, in a, good way or a, or a poor way. Um, but I think if you have the right personnel that need that break um, and, and stuff like that, then yeah, it can definitely help the team. Um, I personally didn't really ever feel like mentally drained to a point that I, I felt like I needed to sit a couple points off or like that full three rotations off. But also with, Help to say when you're in the middle of a match and the adrenaline's going and you think you feel good, but you know, sometimes the coaches know better. So maybe I could have used that every once in a while. Um, I don't really know, but when I was playing, I didn't feel like I needed that, that mental fatigue. I felt like I, uh, I was dialed in from the get go. Um, I had like a pretty set routine pregame, um, that dialed me in and then from there just kind of focused on my game plan all throughout. So, um, but yeah, I, I definitely think it can work if you have the personnel for it and you think that it works for you and it benefits for you. And if, if you're going out there and you're making that double sub and your, your starting setter comes back out and feels refreshed and, you know, making better sets and better decisions and, 
your backup setter in that time that he's sitting off is making plays and staying engaged and he's doing what he has to do. And those attackers are scoring points when they need to, then hundred percent, like that's a, a good game plan by, by that coach and um, definitely helping that team win some games. So. And just the last thing I had in my notes here, uh, if we're talking efficiency at the senior level, middle pipe is the most efficient. I think it's because whatever the middle chooses, they're probably going to be wrong or late on the other one. Right. So with you being a youth sports coach and a youth coach, when would you start to mix this in? Because I think it's one of those things that, man, it's going to be ugly before it gets pretty good. But once that starts clicking, just the efficiency and the breakdown in the defense and how fun it is to fly through the middle and hit a pipe. Like, would you teach this to a 16s? Is it better for the 18s going into post-secondary? Like, what do you think of this middle pipe combo at the senior level? And could it trickle down to the youth? Yeah, I think it's good to get them at least thinking about it um, into the youth level. Um, it's kind of a the same answer that I gave at that last question. It's kind of a not the answer that you want to hear, but depending on your personnel, like if you have if you have, you know, kids that are 14 years old that have been playing because their older brothers are that are eight years older than them after with them since they were five. Their their volleyball IQ is is high enough, and their athletic ability is high enough at the age of fourteen to start trying to run some pipes. They don't have to be fast, but at least get that integrated into that offense. Then, one hundred percent, you should be doing it. Like at least gets them thinking. I think it's great for the setters. It gets the setters thinking of times that I can try and set this pipe ball at the age of fourteen. Like that's like something that I didn't have we didn't really ever set back row in my club career, my entire time that I was there to the point that like, it was the skill that I had to develop in university, which is crazy to think about um, going back and watching the 18 years now that are uh, have the pipes and the sea balls kind of in their offense. Um, it wasn't even a thought process in my head until I got to university that was like, Oh, I could run a sea ball here. I can actually run a back row ball in this situation. Whereas like a year and a half before it was like, okay, am I going middle right side or left side? Like which, which one of these three am I doing? Um, but I know that when I was coaching uh, the sky team last year, we started working the pipe in um, and those guys were 16. So um, I think getting it involved in the youth is really good, helpful for the attackers because they, you know, they get practice at least trying to hit that and staying off the line and trying to figure out how far they need to take off from. But then it's also great for the setters to have one extra thing that they can think about working into their offense. And that can just bump up the volleyball IQ at a, at a young age. Yeah, man, th this has been great. Like I said uh, a couple times here, I got you on for selfish reasons, but uh, hopefully the listeners are going to kick out of this because it's such a complex position. I think it's coached okay, but not super well. So it's good to go down the rabbit hole and have you explain things. And I mean, we just had Pierce on the show again, so it's good for you to stay on par with him. We can't have him having the record for, I think, most attendances on the show. So uh, thanks for, for making the time and sharing all that you did, man. This, is, this has been great. Thanks for having me. I'm, uh, I like giving back, um, giving my, my thought process on the game. Um, I personally think it's a, a bit different than some of the other setters. Um, so I, I like to give my point of view and hopefully help some young setters down the line uh, get to 
help them with their future goals and aspirations. So I appreciate you having me on.